Well, good morning. It is so good to see you guys. Isn't it good to be at church on Sunday morning? I mean, I love it. It's like I get to bump into and talk to some of my favorite people. I moved away from a bunch of my favorite people, but now I got a whole bunch more. It's so cool. So this has been, a, this has been an awesome week for our family. We have uh, kind of wrapped up, you know, things out in Santa Clarita, and we had actually had a, a productive day yesterday putting things away and kind of starting to bring some shape to our house. So we're loving that. And I just, um, I wanted to open this morning, if you have your Bibles, by the way, open up to 3 John. We're going to be looking at 3 John, but I wanted to just, as we think about the message this morning, I want to throw out a verse. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, and it's not going to be on the screen because it, I thought about it this morning during worship. Um, but it's uh, Ephesians 5.15. It says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Have you ever thought about just how critical life is, how important the Christian life is, both the way we live it for ourselves, but also the way that we are impacting other people, in a sense, our purpose in life, to think about why am I here and what am I supposed to be doing? Like that is critical. Somebody sent uh, my boys a a verse this week from Ecclesiastes, and it just says, um, young man, uh, enjoy the days of your youth, pursue the desires of your heart and the delight of your eyes, But remember that God will bring you to judgment for these things. (laughs) So, you know, Ecclesiastes, by the way, I think is one of the best books. And it's interesting because it, it begins really by talking about the futility of everything in life. But throughout the book, it says, enjoy your wife, enjoy your work. It it ends with that challenge that just says, hey, do whatever you feel like doing, but remember God's going to bring you to judgment. What that is saying is enjoy life, pursue good things, pursue the things you enjoy, but don't sin. That doesn't mean do things wrong and just realize you're going to suffer for it later. Um, You know, God's designed life where he's given us purpose He intends for us to have a good time and to enjoy his good gifts, but we can't allow life to become something trite where we just pursue meaningless things. We need to seek joy. We need to enjoy the things that God has given us, but we need to remember that we are here for a reason. We're here for a purpose, and the way that we live, the choices that we make, they matter. And really, 2 and 3 John is the Apostle John writing letters, and he's, he's challenging people and just saying, the way you approach life is critical, it's serious. You need to make the right choices. You need to do the right things. You need to live life with wisdom and to make the most of your time. So that's what we're gonna be kind of focusing in on today. Now, I thought about the fact that Craig said that Second John was the shortest book in the Bible. And when he said that, I just thought, I thought 3 John was the shortest. So I started looking at it, and here's what I found out, is that 2 John has 13 verses, and 3 John has 15. So 2 John is shorter if you're counting verses. But what if you count words? (laughs) 
So if you count English words, if you count the English words in the ESV, 2 John has 300 and 3 John has 302. So 2 John is still the shortest. However, the Bible, the New Testament was not written in English, it was written in Greek. And if you count the Greek words, uh, 2 John has 245 words and 3 John has 218. So tell me, which book is the shortest? You know, it's, uh, I suppose it depends on how you look at it. Um, second and third John, if you, if you look at some words, so I, I did a search on the words truth and love. And if you search on the word truth and you just go by percentage of words in a book, second and third John talk about truth percentage-wise more than any other book in the Bible. If you search on love, Second and Third John talk about love more than any other book in the Bible, percentage-wise. So that is a huge theme in Second and Third John: are truth and love. And John is writing because he wants us to make the most of our time. You have a limited amount of time. You have a limited amount of money. You have a limited amount of resources. And Second and Third John are saying you need to commit what you have to things that really matter. And so Second John. Um, talks about truth and love, but it ends by saying that we need to make sure that we do not support false teachers with our time and energy. Have you ever thought about that? Um, people that are looking for support, people that need help. Like, I always feel heart sore and heartbroken when I see people that are manipulated, taken advantage of by TV preachers, um, poor people that send off their money because it's like um, Christianity is, is portrayed to be like a, a Christian slot machine except you're guaranteed to win. And so people are manipulated to send their money off to support ministries and people that are just robbing people. They, they pretend to speak for God, but really they don't. And what we find out in 2 John is not only is it sad when people send money to people like that, it's actually sinful. Like it is wrong for you to take your time and resources and to support people that are working against the truth, regardless of what they say. And actually that's kind of one of the themes of 2 John right here. It says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. But if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. So that is not just talking about saying hello. It's not just letting somebody come into your house. That was the New Testament way of supporting people, of giving them a place to live, giving them food. So it's a, it's a bigger, it means more than just saying hi and letting somebody come into your house. But it's talking about you do not welcome and you do not support in any way a person who is not bringing the teaching of the gospel. And here's why it says, verse 11, for whoever greets him or supports him takes part in his wicked works. So think about that. I thought about that one time I was, um, I was at a grocery store and there was a cult and they were out there um, telling people their message. And so they stopped me and they talked to me and they handed me some literature. And then they said, hey, um, could, would you mind just contributing 35 cents to pay for the paper that we just gave you to pay, pay for that brochure? And you know what would have been sinful for me to give them 35 cents? 
for me to enable them to go print more material and go you know, promote a message that's contrary to the gospel. So supporting false teachers is not just foolish, it's actually wrong. And so that's Second John. Third John goes on, and Third John tells us that not only are we obligated not to support false teachers, we are obligated to support faithful believers. So there's people we should not support, but there are people we should support. And it, this is a verse that's always just amazed me. It's, it's um, the Apostle Paul writing about Timothy. And when you think about this, this verse, it's a pretty powerful statement. But as I think, as I think about life, it really does ring true. And uh, this is what Paul says about Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. And, and this is the part that gets my attention. It's kind of surprising. And sadly, I found it to be true in life. But it just says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. So many people, even good faithful people, I think one of the things that Satan does to mislead people is he gets them to pursue their own interests. And it's not just them. I think you and I need to really sit and think about ourselves and kind of evaluate what drives me, what motivates me. Am I motivated by self-interest? Do I pursue my own interests? Or do I pursue the interests of Christ? You know, I love 2 Corinthians 5.17, um, or, or it's actually 1 Corinthians 10.13. I messed that up. 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. In other words, every time I see a weakness or a failure in another person's life, I take a step back and go, okay, it's easier to see it in someone else, but where is that showing up in my life? Because we all struggle with the same kind of things. And so if the Apostle Paul is saying everybody seeks their own interests, not the interests of Christ, Timothy's the only one I have to send, then I need to take a step back and think, okay, so do I seek my own interests or do I seek the interests of Christ? And I think as we look at 3 John, there is a description, actually, of a person seeking their own interests and of a person seeking the interests of Christ. And when we look at that, we can take a step back and, and think to ourselves, okay, so which person am I more like? Because if we were to say, okay, raise your hand, who's seeking their own interests and, uh, rather than the interests of Christ? Nobody raises their hand. But the truth is a lot of people are. And so we need to be able to figure out what are the measurements, what are the things that I actually look at in my life to determine whether I'm seeking my own interests or the interests of Christ. And third, John's going to help us. And so uh, we just need to know that we need to make sure that we are supporting the right kind of thing. Now, this book, third John, I'll just say a few things about that. Um, third John is a book that gives us a window into the ministry of the apostle John. He was a man who was transformed by Christ. He was known as the son of, son of thunder, which means he was a powerful man and he had an explosive temper. Um, he, was, he was not like a little passive, weak person. He was a formidable human being. And um, he and his brother go to Jesus one time and they're like little kids. 
but they go to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, um, I want you to promise that you'll say yes to whatever I ask. You ever have a kid do that to you? These grown men as disciples go to Jesus. We want you to say yes to whatever we ask. And then we find out that their request is, when we get into the kingdom of heaven, uh, we want to sit in your right and left. Uh, and the other disciples were really angry because they realized that they got there first. Um, <laughs> They're walking around, and Jesus has a sovereign timetable. So when he walks through the Samaritan area, the Samaritans reject him, but they reject him because he wants them to reject him because he has to get somewhere at a certain time. So sovereignly, he's working out his plan, and the Samaritans reject him, and John and James say, Jesus, they rejected you. Shall we call down fire to consume them? And Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. So that's kind of the, the picture that you get of John in the Gospels. But by the end, we find out that the Apostle John, he really is the apostle of love and truth. And he's this gentle, gracious old man. But there's a little phrase in Third John that tells us that he's still a tough guy. And so I'll point that out to you when we get to it. So this is a letter of encouragement. So the Apostle John, he's an old man. And he's writing to encourage Gaius. Um, Gaius is a faithful man, and he's going to encourage him in three areas. One, Gaius is doing well spiritually, and he's working that out in his life by the way he supports people. And so first, he says, you have good values. That's verse one through four. Secondly, he says, you're supporting the right people in the right way. That's verses five through eight. And then especially in verses 9 and 10, but verse 9 through the end of the book, he, he says, I know that there's a really powerful, strong man who's actually a prideful, arrogant person who's leading the church. They've, he's worked his way into a position of leadership, and he's actually hindering and harming uh, people that are actually working for the gospel, and you're standing against him. And so he writes, him, he writes to encourage him and say, hey, that guy's a, he doesn't say it like this, but that guy's an idiot. And he's very powerful and influential, and people who go against him suffer. But you're going against him. Good job. Keep up the good work. So those are the three things that he writes in Third John. Um, shall we look at them? All right, let's, let's read them. So the first thing we're going to see is that we're called to love in truth. So this is verse 1 through 4, and it's... The Apostle John encouraging Gaius, and, and just look at this, if 3 John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the elder to the beloved Gaius. Now, this word elder, I, I called some ladies this week old. <laughs> I was praying for them. I called them old in a prayer. I said the older ladies. And one of the things that I was thinking about is that in our culture and society, that can be an insult. Um, right after I did it, Michelle punched me in the leg <laughs> during the prayer. Boom. <laughs> I was like, okay, I shouldn't have said that. But actually, age and maturity, age and Christian maturity, to be an older lady, to be an older man, that's something that's respected. That's something that we should look at and value. And we have a culture that values the wrong things. And so the Apostle Paul refers to himself, or the Apostle John, um, hey, I'm kind of new here, but I want to just tell you, you got to get what I mean, not necessarily what I say. <laughs> Every once in a while, like I said the other, like a couple weeks ago, I said, um, I, th I said Ruth when I meant Esther. And so just get what, I, get what I mean rather than just what I say. So we're talking about the Apostle John this morning. 
Um, but the Apostle John refers to himself as an elder. That, that's a humble phrase, but it's actually a phrase of dignity and respect. He is an older man who has experience in life and is a leader. And so he says, the elder, that's how he refers to himself, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now in Greek, that's actually really powerful because he repeats I twice. So he's saying love twice, but actually in Greek, the word I is in there twice. So he's saying who I, I love in truth. So he's talking about how powerful his love is for Gaius and that he's loving him in the truth. And that's actually one of the things that we need to recognize is that we need to love people in the truth. And actually, you can't really love people if it's not in the realm of truth and if it's not with truth. Truth is one of the things that is most important for us. And you see his good affection and his love for for Gaius. We're going to come back to truth in a second. But his love for Gaius is so powerful that he wants, he wishes him well in every area. He's not just saying, hey, Gaius, I want you to do well spiritually. He's saying, I want you to do well spiritually and physically and in every area. You know, our love for people is not just confined to their spiritual well-being. We want their well-being in every area. Now, their spiritual well-being obviously is the most important thing. But you think about that. When you genuinely love people, sometimes it's hard to love people and to wish them to do well in health when we're physically suffering. Sometimes it's hard to wish that other people would prosper financially when we're struggling financially. But when we really love people, we want everything to go well in their life all the time. And the way that John prays for Gaius, it's kind of a challenge. And, and I would just ask you, this, this is a prayer that could be a blessing or it could actually be a curse. <laughs> Look at this. He says, um, verse 2, beloved. There he says, love talks about love again beloved I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul so the controlling statement there is he basically says to Gaius Gaius I want you to be as physically healthy as you are spiritually healthy and for Gaius that's a huge compliment I got a question for you. If people said, I want you to be as physically healthy as you are spiritually healthy, please don't pray that for me. Like, would that, would, would that mean that you had, you'd have to get sick or have a heart attack or get cancer or something like that because spiritually you neglect your life? You're involved in sin. You do all the things that God says you shouldn't do. Like, would it be a blessing in your life if somebody prayed that you would prosper in every area of your life the way you're prospering spiritually? I mean, that says something about priorities, and it actually says something about how well Gaius is doing spiritually that John wants to pray that. He's just saying, I love you, and I want everything to go well in your life, and you're doing so well spiritually. Hey, I want everything in your life to be like that. And that should be something that's true of us. He goes on, verse 3, he says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, Indeed, you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's the thing that brings John the most joy is when his children are walking in the truth, when people that he's ministering to are living out the truth. And I could just throw out there a question, is that what gives you the greatest joy? 
when people are walking in the truth. See, sometimes I think that we can view life incorrectly and we can feel like, and I think that this is actually a huge hindrance to the gospel. It's a huge hindrance to our evangelism ministry is when we actually think that that's not the most important thing in life. And here's how you know that. If you meet a homeless person and in having a conversation with them, they have nothing but you can tell that they have a vibrant relationship with the Lord, they love the Lord, and you just see them doing well spiritually even though they're really struggling, or a really poor person, or a person with Down syndrome. One time we had a kid in youth group who had Down syndrome, and, and he, he actually was in youth group. I remember when he was hit that age, his mom was like, I don't know, should he come to youth group? And we said, yeah, bring him. And so, but he stayed in youth group for like eight years, you know, instead of four. And because he was in high school for a really long time. But one of the things I loved about that kid is that he genuinely loved the Lord. And we would talk about that. We would talk about his relationship with the Lord. And you could tell this kid loves the Lord. And then you think to yourself, if I had a choice and I could have a son with Down syndrome who loves the Lord, or I could have a son that uh, plays in the NBA and does really well in schools, really smart, but doesn't walk with the Lord, which would I choose? See, we find out that people have a Down syndrome kid, and sometimes we're brokenhearted about that, and I'm not saying that there's not sadness or that that's not a challenging thing. Uh, I never prayed that any of my kids would have Down syndrome when they were going to be born, but, but sometimes we value things incorrectly because we'll look at that and we'll say, what a tragedy, when maybe we should look at somebody who's doing really well and who's really smart and who's really successful and who's a professional athlete, and we should say, what a tragedy, because those things pull them away from the Lord. See, truth and walking in truth and having a relationship with God is the most significant thing in life, more important than anything else. But a lot of times we don't look at it that way because we would we would look at this person and say, oh, poor you. We'd look at this person and say, oh, how lucky. And if you could say, if you have a choice to be one, which would you pick? And we'd, we'd pick the professional athlete. Instead of saying, no, if those are my options, I'll take down syndrome, please. And so we need to be people like John that value love and truth. This is what Jesus says about love and truth. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews, who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, that's to walk in the truth. That's to see God's word as true. If you walk in the truth, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, there's a lot of people who, when they look at God's word, they just feel like, oh, it's optional. It was written by people. I really don't like what it says. Uh, one time I was in an elder meeting. This is years and years ago. And we were talking about something, and one person says in the meeting, hey, you know, I don't think our approach to that's biblical. The Bible says this, and he quotes the Apostle Paul. And one of the other leaders says, ah, Paul's just a, he's just a chauvinist. I don't really care what he has to say. This is in an elder meeting with spiritual leaders looking at God's word and discounting it, seeing it as a human invention. Um, I, was, I would be shocked personally to hear anybody say anything like that, much less a spiritual leader. Um, this is what Proverbs 14, 12 says. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it is the way of death. Think about 
the, really thi- the things that are really wrong with our culture. You can have a 10-year-old kid who's confused about their gender. And people will take a 10-year-old little boy who says, I think I'm a girl, and they'll take that 10-year-old kid and they'll, start, they'll give him surgery and start giving him hormone treatments and do things that are going to forever harm him and change his life. And we live in a culture that thinks that's a good idea. And, and by the way, you can find all kinds of people with all kinds of degrees that will tell you that that's a good idea. And that's just a super easy illustration, but that's not the only one. How about living with somebody you're not married to? Um, How about getting a divorce if you're in a really bad marriage? There are all kinds of things that our culture says, oh no, I think this is the best way. And they disregard what God says the best way is. So here's something that we all need to know. It's Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. Anytime your perspective or opinion is different than God's, you are the one who's wrong. Um, God's never wrong. He never learns. He never makes mistakes. The other thing is that God not only knows everything, but God also has the right to make every decision. God doesn't ask anybody's opinion. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. The Bible says that every nation is less than nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. It's less than nothing to God. God by himself is in charge and has the authority to do whatever he wants. Daniel, um, King Nebuchadnezzar learns that in Daniel chapter 4, where um, uh, after, so Nebuchadnezzar disregards God. God says, you're prideful and you think you have what you have because you're so great. You don't realize I gave it to you. And so Daniel says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, please repent, change your attitude. And a year later, uh, Nebuchadnezzar just disregards God. And God says, okay, you want to disregard me? Well, you can wander around in the field like a cow for the next seven years. And so he just loses his mind and wanders around. And then at the end, he comes back and he says, I've learned that there's nobody like the king of heaven. There's nobody like God. Nobody can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody says that to God. And so God's truth not only is a gift, not only is it a blessing for us, but it comes from the one who has all of the authority in the universe, and we should never disregard God or what he says. And so that's why John just says, I love you because you are living out and walking in the truth. Um, The next... John 17, 17, in case you're not sure what the truth is, um, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's Jesus said that. The Bible, all of it, is God's truth. That's in case we're confused. And I just want you to know, if you love anybody, then that's what you want them to know. And the greatest curse in a person's life is when God removes his truth. Did you know that happens? Uh, Amos is an example of that. Um, God looks at the nation of Israel. He's been telling them things. They've been ignoring and blowing off his truth. And this is what he says to them. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread, nor a thirst for water, but for hearing the words of the Lord. 
And then the next verse goes on and it says people are going to stagger to and fro from sea to sea seeking a word from God and they won't have it. I think about all the kids who grow up in a Christian home with a Christian mom and a dad who love them, who are telling the truth and they rebel and they reject it and then they run off and eventually they're not listening to their parents. They're not in church around people who love them. It's like they go to a, a, a place where all of a sudden nobody cares about them and tells them the truth. And Proverbs chapter 1, I put it here. I'm not going to read it for you. But Proverbs 1 is God saying, I gave you truth. You didn't listen to it. Disaster is going to come, and I'm going to laugh because you disregarded what I told you. Uh, have you ever met somebody who disregards everything God says, and then their life ends up a mess? They are pain. They're in sorrow. And they say, how could God let this happen to me? You ever seen that? It's like, well, if you would have done the things God said, none of this would have happened to you. But you're going to blame God that when you didn't listen to him, now you're suffering. But that's the way a lot of people live. In a sense, maybe they are. I know I would. I've, I've talked to parents whose kids want to go to the mission field, and the parents are saying, no, don't do that. Um, people who sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel, we should support. So when this guy says, I can't get water, I need 1500 bucks for a filter or something like that. I just want to know, who's not going to go get that for him? It's like, because he's so faithful. That's how we need to approach missionaries. When he came back, the picture of me and him and the motorcycles, we were off having fun. No, he came back and he's like, Raj, I'm having a hard time getting to remote areas. Will you teach me to ride a motorcycle? So we had some plans scheduled for a couple weekends, and I got my family and said, hey, he needs to learn how to ride a motorcycle. How do you feel about us canceling our plans? I'm going to take him out and teach him how to do it. And so that's what we did that weekend. And the next weekend was him learning to ride a motorcycle so he could do ministry. And I just want you to know that was not suffering for me um, that I did that. That was not a servant-hearted thing for me to go hang out with somebody that I really enjoy being with. So I'm going to point out a few things. We'll go quickly here. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers. We need to be faithful to the brothers. Now, here's the thing about those traveling missionaries. For this gentleman, he is a close friend of mine. It is not a sacrifice for me to spend time with him. But what about people I don't know? What if he were to send somebody to this country and just say, hey, this guy needs some help, and I didn't even know him. Would I invite him into my house? Would I help him the same way I would help a friend that I love a lot? And what he's saying, what uh, John is saying to Gaius is, Gaius, I'm sending out missionaries. You don't even know them. They are strangers, but you are treating them like they're your own family. That's how we need to support people who are doing ministry. If your, if your kid was on the mission field and couldn't drink water and needed a water filter, would you get it for him? Would there be any question? It was interesting because he needed a water filter. And as that need came up, it was interesting to sit around and listen to some people talk about whether or not we should meet that need. <laughs> it was kind of like, what? Are you kidding me? If this was your kid, would you meet the need? And that's how we're to, pre that's how we're to treat people who are ministering. Uh, verse Six says, you will do well to send them on their journey. Sending them is support, it's food, it's giving them what they need in a manner worthy of God. God takes personally how we treat people. If Jesus showed up and said, hey, I need a water filter, would anybody not give that to him? Sure, everything I have I got from you. Yeah, what do you want? And that's how we should treat these people. And then it says, why? 
It says, for they have gone out for the sake of the name. That they do what they do because they're committed to the Lord. Now, I'm sure that they have a heart for the people they're ministering to. I know he wants to see pastors and people in the area where he's ministering. He loves them and he wants to see them come to Christ. But ultimately, he's not there for them. He's there for God. And when you find people who are genuinely motivated by the interests of Christ, you should meet their needs. That's what, that's what we look for. When you're looking for a missionary, you're looking to support a missionary. One of the things I think is funny is there are so many people who say, I want to go on a missions trip and to the church. Will you support me? And it's like, okay, uh, when was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody you work with? How many of your neighbors have you brought to church? Who are you discipling in the church? Nobody. And it's like, okay, wait a second. So are you saying you want a vacation to another country and you'd like the church to pay for it? Is that, is that what you're saying? Why would you send somebody somewhere else to do something that they don't, want to, that they don't do when they're here? Uh, there are a few missionaries that our church sent out, and I just want you to know they're, one of, they're some of the most valuable people in the church. Like when they left, it hurt. There were people that they were discipling. They were servant-hearted. They were showing up and doing things. They were sharing the gospel with people. And then when they say, hey, I want to go on the mission field, it's like, okay, how much do you need? And then there's other people who do nothing for ministry and say, send me on a missions trip. Why would we do that? And so when you find a person who's genuinely interested in the interests of Christ and who does what they do for the cause of the gospel, for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, why would Gentiles and people who don't know the Lord support them? It's the body of Christ's job to support them. For they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought, that's an obligation, to support people like these, not to support everyone, but to support people like that, that we may be fellow workers with the truth. One of the things I think about is I don't have to go to Zimbabwe. I don't have to go to Brazil. I can minister there by supporting people who are ministering there. So you're a fellow worker with the truth if you support people that are doing the truth. You're a fellow worker with Satan if you're supporting people who are doing the work of Satan. And that's like second and third John. Support this kind of people, don't support that kind of people. All right, ready for the third point? I got seven seconds. No, it doesn't. So. We're called to stand with faithful people, even when it hurts. Um, sometimes people who have no business in leadership in the church work their way up into leadership in the church. And sometimes people become influential who should not be influential. And John writes, because there's a guy like that in Gaius's church. And he's a leader in the church, and he's influential in the church. And John actually lists out some of his character qualities. We need to be able to recognize the faithful people and support them. We need to be able to recognize people who are not faithful. And number one, don't be like them. And number two, don't support what they're doing. And, and that's, this is a guy in the church. And one of the churches that John is leading, there is a very influential leader who's working counter to the gospel. And John has to say, hey, keep standing against him. So 3 John 1, 9, it says this, I have written something to the church 
So the Apostle John writes a letter to the church. That's pretty substantial, right? He's the friend of Jesus, remember? Leaning on his breast at the table, trained by Jesus for three years, a faithful man, and he writes something to the church, and some, nobody is gonna, well, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So there's a guy in the church, and you know what? It's all about him. And I'm sure he doesn't raise his hand and say, hey, look, it's all about me. I would like to build my kingdom here. This isn't about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is not the head of the church. I'm the head of the church. That is not what this guy is saying. He's saying Jesus is the head of the church, but he's working things out where he's the head of the church. And we know that because he rejects what God says through the apostle John. He rejects the leadership and the authority that God has put in place. And why? he loves to be first and he does not acknowledge our authority uh, who's John I don't know him why should I listen to him so this guy he's a leader in the church he's in a position to reject the Apostle John he's influential he's not some guy attending somewhere he's influential enough to say oh yeah the Apostle John wrote a letter we disregard that we're not doing that he was influential enough to do that He was powerful enough that when John sent out missionaries and people supported them, he was powerful enough to put those people out of the church. Oh, really? I told you not to support them. You're going to support them? You're out. He was powerful enough to kick people out of the church. And who's supporting these missionaries? Gaius, right? This is why John's writing to encourage him because Gaius is actually supporting them and this guy's kicking people out of the church who support these people. And he was confident enough to stand against um, the Apostle John. So it says here that he does not acknowledge our authority. You know, that's part of God's truth is God's truth gives us a grid it gives us a, a grid in which to function, and we can say, okay, here's, here's my options. This is what I should do. This is how I should filter things. And one of the things I know I think about is, who has God put in charge? I'm going to follow their leadership. And you just think through, are, are they rightfully the authority here? Okay, I wouldn't do it that way, but that's what they're saying, so that's what I'm going to do. And so that's one of the things for me is that I've been able in my life to filter some things out by just saying, okay, God put them in charge, then they're in charge. Think about King David, right, and his attitude toward authority. King David is anointed as the king. Saul is a wicked man who's oppressed by a demon who's trying to kill David unrighteously. And David says, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. So it's interesting, though, because was Diotrephes the Lord's anointed? No, somebody fell down on their job because that person should not have been in leadership. And so that can be a challenge sometime is to figure out, okay, how do we sort this out? Um, When we think about rebellion, rejecting God's leaders, that's a pretty big deal. Look at this. 1 Samuel 15, 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as the iniquity of idolatry. God says rebellion is like Satan worship. So uh, this is one of the things I always think is funny is people say, oh, yeah, um, rebellion, that's a natural, normal part of teenage, a teenager's life. You ever heard that? I just think, you know, if, if somebody came home and their, their kid was worshiping Satan in their room, oh, yeah, he's a teenager. That's what we expect. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
we need to take rebellion for what it is. Have you ever seen that? You ever have, see people that kind of pick out a leader and rebel against that leader? We need to see that for what it is. We need to see it in our own life. Sometimes we think, oh man, how come my kids are struggling with rebellion? Well, we encourage rebellion. We're rebellious against all the authorities in our life and then our kids see that and we're surprised then that they rebel against us. Verse 10, so if I come, I will bring up what he's doing. So the apostle John is just saying, I'm gonna come address what he's doing. And I'm just saying, John may be an old man, but you don't wanna mess with him. And John says, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna address, that's like a threat. That's not a threat, but he's just saying, if I was Diotrephes, I'd be worried about that. But here's how Diotrephes goes about his business. Look at this, talking wicked nonsense against us. See, Diotrephes gets people together and he slanders John and he talks wicked nonsense. It's his evil motives and it's actually not true, but the things he says are convincing. Uh, you know, Proverbs says, whoever speaks first seems right. You ever sit around with people who are like, oh man, yeah, you know, if you only knew what this person was like, or hey, let me tell you about what happened to me in this situation. Oh, I was so mistreated. And, and then in a sense, they make their case and their argument, and you start, and, and all of a sudden now, your perspective of another person starts to be colored by what somebody else is saying about them, slander. That's why we don't talk about people, we talk to them. And one of the things I, I, I think about is like if there's a conversation about somebody and there's anything negative, are they there? Because if you actually want to say something about somebody, wouldn't you say it with them there? Like Diotrephes is not waiting for John to be there because John would probably have a good response to the things that he's saying. But if you can get into a group of people and talk about somebody who's not there, you can color them. And that's how Diotrephes goes about his business. That's how this nobody ends up getting people to disregard the apostle John. And so um, that's a question for yourself. Am I like Diotrephes? Well, am I committed to my own self-interest? Do I reject the authorities that God has put in place? Do I speak against people? Do I say negative things about people who aren't there? Okay, well, you're on track to be Diotrephes if those things are true. He goes on and he says he, ref he re refuses to welcome the brothers and he stops those who wants to and he puts them out of the church. So he is intimidating, he is treacherous, and he uses his authority to harm people. Um, that's Diotrephes. And then uh, this is the thing that, that John kind of wraps things up in this way. So let me just say this, don't be Diotrephes, that's a description of him. Uh, look at those qualities and, and just say, are those in me? And I just want to tell you guys, there are times that I notice things like that. There's times I've said things and later I've thought, you know what, I should not have said that. We can all struggle with these things. It's a, it's a constant battle. It's a constant thing that we need to be looking toward. And verse 11 um, goes on and it says, Beloved, do not imitate evil but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Why do you think John has to tell Gaius, don't imitate this? See, sometimes we get into battles where people are slandering and speaking against us and things like that, and we just feel like, well, if they're going to speak against me, I better speak against them or they're going to win. And instead, what we should be saying is, 
No matter what they do, I'm going to honor the Lord in my life. I'm going to let him fight my battles. You think about Moses. You got Miriam and Aaron, and they speak against Moses because he, he married a black woman, and um, his sister and his brother spoke against him for that. And God calls him outside, and he says, who do you think you are to speak against my, my servant and gives Miriam leprosy? Um, Moses never went and defended himself to Miriam. Uh, the sons of Korah also rebelled against Moses, and Moses says, hey, let's let God decide. And so God says, um, put them over there and don't stand around them. <laughs> and then the ground opens up, they go in, and the ground closes over the top of them. So one thing we could say, hey, if they're going to attack me that way, I better fight back. Or we could just say, hey, God's in charge. We're going to let him do things his way. I'm going to honor the Lord in my life so I have his protection and help. And John tells Gaius, hey, Gaius, don't be like him. Just be faithful. Trust the Lord to take care of you. And so as we kind of close this morning, we need to be people who are like John, Gaius, and Demetrius. We need to genuinely love people in truth. We need to live with spiritual priorities. We need to actually accomplish and sacrifice ourselves to help missionaries and people that are working for the gospel. We need to have a selective use of our resources. We don't support everyone so that we can support the right people. And we need to stand for what's right, even when it costs us. Um, this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and one of the things that we need to remember is that we are here for a significant purpose. There's, there's a world that is separated from God that needs the gospel, that needs help. They need the Lord's work in their life. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're remembering that Jesus came and died on the cross. And he did that so that we could be forgiven. That's our purpose. One of the things I love about celebrating the Lord's Supper is that it is a reminder of why we're here. Jesus forgave us. And it's because of his work. It's not because of what we do. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a moment, there's, there's bread at the tables. You can get up and, and help yourselves as, as the song is going. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness, for your word. Help us to be people that love you and submit to you and that that would work its way out in who we follow and in who we support. And Lord, help us to always trust you and always be committed to honoring you and doing what's right in your name. Amen.